Hello and welcome to At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft Law, and this is the third and final episode in our three-part series on the trial of the Chicago 7. We recommend that you listen to the first two parts of the conversation before this part, but it's a free country and you can choose your own adventure. I'm joined today by Jen Byrne of the Chicago Bar Association. Hey, Jen. Hey, John. Excited for this one today. As am I. So, Jen, our guest is John Freunds, one of the two last surviving members of the Chicago 7. John was a 29-year-old anti-war activist when he came to Chicago to protest the Democratic National Convention in 1968. With a PhD in chemistry from Yale, he was charged with traveling across state lines for purposes of inciting a riot and with making incendiary devices. He was one of two defendants acquitted by the jury on both of those counts brought against him, And following the trial, John went on to have a distinguished teaching career, first at Goddard College in Vermont and later at UCLA, among other positions. As before, I want to repeat, we understand that even 50 years later, this topic touches on deep-seated memories and emotions for those who supported and those who opposed the Chicago 1968 protests, the Vietnam War, and the prosecution of the Chicago 7. We don't take sides in that debate. We don't interrogate John, and we didn't interrogate Dick Schultz. Our role in this interview series is to let both men explain to us and to you their recollections and views of the events those many years ago. And with that, John, welcome to At The Bar. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, John, let's jump right in. I think one question that our audience will have, especially after viewing Aaron Sorkin's movie that just came out on Netflix, is, in your words, why did you go to Chicago in 1968? Did you intend to organize a peaceful protest or did you go with the hope that you might be able to incite the police? There was an organization called Students for Democratic Society and SDS as it was called. And uh, I was a member of the New Haven, Connecticut group and Tom Hayden was uh, lead on uh, Newark, New Jersey. And Rennie Davis was the person who was the lead for Chicago. So you had people who were community organizers. And I say this because there were were not as many students. And the people who were the community organizers were the people who actually had the experience. And we were, so we came and we were the, the marshals. So my point is that there was a, a group of people who were more experienced than others, and that was the, the community organizing group called, it was a, what's called the Economic Research and Action Project. Right. And that's, that's where Tom and I hooked up. But what was, the, what was the objective in going to Chicago? Why did you want to go to Chicago that year? Well, that year, the... Um, the organization that, that was responsible for Chicago was first the Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam. Right. And secondly, there were the Yippies, which was Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. So that uh, there was a real organization that occurred and uh, people were enthusiastic. The uh, first night of the demonstrations, the police came through about 11 o'clock at night, beating students, uh, protesters. 
And so that set in motion the, the plan that was going to happen that week. was not that we were violent, that the, the uh, anti-war protesters were strictly nonviolent, absolutely. And then Sorkin's film, he shows some demonstrators fighting the police, but that didn't occur. So the, the demonstrators went along during that week. And uh, basically it was a nonviolent, uh, which is the hallmark of, of the mobilization committee, which is made up of a number of organizations. Prior to all of the various groups coalescing in Chicago, um, it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but Mayor Daley was already purportedly hostile towards any potential demonstrators that were coming in. Um, I read that permits were applied for for the demonstrations, but were actually denied. So, you know, you mentioned that once you got there and started with the protests, things turned violent, but what were you know, as an organization, members of the SDS, what were you expecting when you came to Chicago? Were you prepared for, you know, the police brutality or was it far beyond what you expected? Well, interestingly enough, we anticipated violence. We did not want violence. In fact, demonstrators did not pursue violence so that there was no a quid pro quo in terms of daily and what have you. The thing that's, of course, important is the permits were denied, as you mean. So there were no permits. So the first thing we did was on the first night of the demonstrations, we were in Lincoln Park and we were waiting to see what would happen. And for example, I had a bullhorn and I was giving instructions to people to leave the park because we didn't, we didn't want to create a problem for the rest of the week. So we tried to get demonstrators to leave the park. And as it turned out, nobody left the park. There was an 11 o'clock curfew that the city announced, correct? Right, right. So by staying in Lincoln Park past 11 p.m., you said you were testing the police to see how they would react? Well, yes, yes, absolutely. There were both the, the mode people as well as the Yippies. Both were in attendance. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was in the low thousands, I think. Later during the week, uh, the numbers swelled, and um, there was more activity, as, as you well know. Sure. John, let me ask you this, uh, because it's a question both Jen and I had. Why was the Democratic National Convention targeted for this protest, as opposed to, for example, the Republican National Convention? Well, there was no question about why. Lyndon Johnson had declared the fact that he was not going to run for re-election. And so with Johnson going out of the political picture, the uh, situation was an ugly situation. When Martin Luther King was killed, there were riots in Chicago that were quite significant. They were really quite striking. And 
Mayor Daly said he was in favor of shooting picketers. And so he was followed a law and order kind of ethos. So did it have more to do with Mayor Daly than the fact that it was the DNC that was gathering there? Or I, I guess what what I don't really understand is you disagreed sharply with the Democratic Party's platform, which was, right. let's say, you know, what we would then probably characterize as center, center, left. But you disagreed more, presumably, with Richard Nixon's platform. Right. But you chose to protest the Democrats instead of the Republicans. That seems counterintuitive to me. Well, it was, um, uh, Hubert Humphrey was nominated to be for the Democratic seat in the... Right. Johnson's vice president. Yeah. So the fact that, that Hubert Humphrey basically gave every indication of continuing the war in Vietnam, even though uh, Johnson had, had been less enthused okay. at that point. So was it more about sending a message to the delegates at the convention than to the country as a whole? Well, that's a really good question. For example, Tom Hayden spent time with the demonstrators in the Hilton Hotel. So he was working politically to try and join forces with McCarthy people. But by and large, there was not much of a linkage between the McCarthy people and the Moe demonstrators. But there was also a fair number of people who were from Students for a Democratic Society. And they were to the left of the Democratic Party, and strikingly so, such that there was an organization called Weathermen, and Weathermen were violent, decidedly so. Rennie and Tom and I went to a meeting in Flint, Michigan, of the Weathermen, and Bernadine Dorn, who was a, a weather person, she talked about putting a knife into the pregnant stomach of a, the U.S. So she was far and away left of anything that had happened. We were, in a sense, the moderates, if you will. Were the weathermen in Chicago in 1968 at the protests? Yes. And then they had the days of rage some time later. There was a suggestion in the in the movie, John, that when the confrontation in Grant Park happened, that someone in the crowd of protesters yelled and urged the other protesters to take the hill. In other words, to charge the police who had set up a line. Did that occur? Yes. The uh, story goes, there was uh, Hayden was arrested. And then there was, to support Hayden, there was a group of demonstrators that went down to Grant Park. And uh, when we got there, there was a young man, I don't know who he was or what his interests were, but he climbed the statue. And when he climbed the statue, the police got him off the statue and he broke his leg. And I, I assume he was arrested, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on what actually happened with him. 
but there were there was a very large number of demonstrators around the Hayden uh, support group. So circling back to sort of who all the key players were that were involved in the organizing of the protests and you know, you mentioned that there were multiple factions that were that were involved. Some were more left-leaning, some extremely so in the case of the Weathermen. But that begs the question, how did the Chicago 7, or rather the Chicago 8, which became the Chicago 7, how did each of you as individuals get targeted, do you believe, and have charges brought against you? And what was your connection to one another? Well... That's why I told you the story about Hayden, uh, about the Economic Research and Action Project that was uh, the community organization projects of SDS. And because the people who went to Chicago were by and large a number of SDS type folks. And uh, that's why I mentioned the, the community organizing projects that were in two in Cleveland, uh, Chicago, New Haven, Newark. So there, there was a, a, an actual well-defined organization of these community organizing projects that worked in lower-income communities. Hayden, for example, was the head of Newark, and Rennie Davis was the lead uh, in Chicago. So that you had a fair amount of activity coming from the ERAP people. But because Hayden and the newer project was going on and Tom and I knew each other and were friends and we were sharing, the New Haven group was close to the newer group. So we had actual linkages that occurred that were the result of the community organizing projects. John, did the Yippies have any connection to SDS and ERAP? No, no, not, not that I know of. Abby and Jerry were pretty much on their, on their own. Okay. What about the Black Panthers? Well, uh, there really was no significant activity on the part of the Panthers. But the thing is, the most, the most important thing to discuss when you think about the Panthers was the murder of Fred Hampton, who was the Panther leader in Chicago. Right. He was a, an extraordinary leader. He was really something else. And we went to a fundraiser someplace in Chicago and when my wife and I drove home, she was crying. I said, why are you crying? She said, because they're going to kill him. And he, Fred Hampton was killed within the week. Right. I think that was December 1969, right? Yeah. I'm not sure of the date. But, but Fred Hampton was an extraordinary leader. But basically, Bobby Seale did not have much of a role because of the Charles Gary situation where Gary had to have his gallbladder removed and Bobby Seale would not accept Bill Kunstler as his lawyer, nor Lenny Weinglass. That's a good bridge to the, let's go to the trial, John, and talk about that a little bit. There was a suggestion, more than a suggestion, I should say, in the movie 
that the only reason that you were charged and that Lee Weiner was charged was really trial tactics to give the jury someone who was clearly not radical so that they could make the Solomonic decision to acquit you, which would supposedly, I suppose the idea was to make it easier for them to convict the other defendants. Do you think, looking back on it today, do you think that's why you were charged? No, I'm not sure. I I would agree with that. Uh, what happened was there, there was a chemical called butyric acid. And butyric acid, the women who were activists in the demonstrations, they would go to, say, the Hilton Hotel, and they would take out a, a cloth and they would pour the butyric acid over the cloth and within three minutes empty out the Hilton Hotel. So that the people who were very enthusiastic, just extraordinary fun they had, the government knew that butyric acid had been bought. So I think it was in part due to the the chemical warfare, if you will. So you have the more extreme protesters committing acts of, as you said, chemical warfare in the course of these protests. But what was their connection to you? I'm trying to get at why you were chosen, why you were charged. There was a, a group of people gathered together in on the last day of the demonstrations. And there was a discussion about blowing up the underground garage in Chicago. And I took one look at that and got my my way out because I the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to get tied in with people who were going to do Molotov cocktails. But I'm a PhD chemist, so that I think that they saw me as the, the mobilization chemist, if you will. A person who would have been capable of building a Molotov cocktail or some sort of incendiary device, right? Yeah, yeah. I, as the discussion went on for a while, and I said, then I got out because I thought it was crazy to pursue that kind of thinking. These were nonviolent protests throughout the week and should remain so. And that's probably a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back. Do you have a legal matter that you need resolved but want to avoid the expense of going to court? The litigation process can be stressful and costly, but there's another solution, mediation. The Chicago Bar Association Mediation Service enables you to choose a qualified attorney mediator to help resolve your business or legal dispute efficiently and for a reasonable fee. All participating attorneys have been fully vetted by the Chicago Bar Association. They have undergone an extensive training process to ensure that they provide the highest quality service and can guide you to an amicable resolution of your dispute. Call 312-554-2040 or email mediation at chicagobar.org to get started with the Chicago Bar Association Mediation Service today. 
This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by CourtFiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process. CourtFiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at CourtFiling.net to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let CourtFiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. And we're back. John, let's stay on the trial for a minute. You mentioned Bobby Seal before. One of the more I think shocking and appalling things that happened during the trial was when Judge Hoffman ordered him to be bound and gagged. He was the only black defendant, and he had him dragged out of the courtroom, bound and gagged by the marshals, and then dragged back into the courtroom in front of the jury. Right. Can you tell us what that was like? Yes, it was it was a very interesting period. Bobby Seale was taken, was in jail, and uh the question became, what would the other seven defendants do? And the weathermen, for example, wanted to trash the courtroom. And uh, they were angry at Hayden and me and the more moderate demonstrators. So that um, what happened was we, we did not stand up for the judge. And so we got contempt of court charges against us. But what we wanted to figure out what, what we were going to do, and there were different points of view. Abby and Jerry and Yippies wanted to disrupt the courtroom, and uh, Tom Hayden did not want to take on an aggressive action. And basically, the position that Tom took was that if we got, lost our bail, because of tearing up the courtroom, whatever tearing up it would be. If we lost our bail, then the political effort would be, would be lost because we were going out giving speeches every night of the week. So you have eight people and you have, well, seven people. And uh, you had all those people who were giving speeches in, on campuses. And Hayden and me, I'm, I was in the Hayden camp. So we, we, went, we went back into the, the meet with Bobby, and Bobby Seale said the white defendants should not do anything. The focus is on me, and I want to keep it that way. So that the white defendants did not play a, an assertive role when it came to Bobby Seale. So it was Bobby Seale's decision for you to essentially be more passive in the light of his mistreatment by the judge? Yes, absolutely. He was very insistent. And uh, he came back and testified in court later in the year. But he had the, the murder trial in New Haven to deal with. So what happened was the Chicago 7... Tom and I represented one group, and Rennie was sort of in between. 
and Lee Weiner didn't have much to do with with the whole thing. Can I ask, getting back to the original question, though, when that happened to Bobby Seale, what was the atmosphere in the courtroom like? Was it a reaction of shock? I'm just trying to get at what it was like to be in that courtroom when you saw that happen. Well, it was it was striking uh, because what they did was they took some cloth and they put it in Bobby's mouth as an attempt to get him to stop raising his voice in the courtroom. But he couldn't get it to work. So Bobby Seale was never chained and gagged in a sense, in a real sense. Just in, in follow-up to that, obviously, I haven't seen the Aaron Sorkin film yet, but obviously some of the more memorable moments from the trial, or I guess, you know, what, what the public recalls from reading about it have to do with, you know, Abby Hoffman and I guess more theatrical actions that they took. What was your take on on that and coming from your camp of sort of the more moderate voice or I guess more the serious voice, what was your your take on that and would that differ from your philosophy of how the defense strategy should be handled? Well, I, I can say without doubt, Abby Hoffman is a genius. He was without, without doubt one of the most talented people I've ever known in my life. And he was, he ended up having troubles later with drugs. But he, he himself was a remarkable person. And Jerry Rubin wasn't Abby's equal. Abby was himself basically unique. Uh, I, I love Abby Hoffman. But... John, there was a divide in the defense strategy, right? There were, as right. Jen said, there were there were some of you, uh, like Tom Hayden and yourself, who wanted to take the defense more seriously, and there were those like Abby Hoffman and Rubin who wanted to make more of a circus out of the courtroom and make a larger political statement about the proceedings rather than trying to defend themselves on the merits. Right. Is that accurate? Yes. How did that divide play out? During the course of the trial, Abby worked diligently to get famous speakers to come testify. So he got, he went to Hollywood, he went to New York. He was very active in finding witnesses. And the, the person who really was the genius when it came to finding witnesses for us was uh, Hayden. Tom Hayden would, we would buy a half pint of bourbon and we would meet at midnight and we'd spend from midnight to 4 a.m. getting our witnesses prepared. So Tom was, Tom was really quite skilled and knowledgeable. And then what that did, of course, is that it made Abby and Jerry, there was, there was no, no question that there was some bad blood between the various defendants. The way you're describing it is very interesting because it sounds like the defendants were driving the trial strategy and not the lawyers. You had you know, a legendary civil rights lawyer, Bill Kunstler, 
as your attorney, but the way you're describing it, it sounds like he wasn't getting the witnesses prepared to testify. It was Tom Hayden, which is, you know, very unusual. There's no question. Kunstler was not very active. He's a showman with a strong personality, but he's not a good lawyer like Lenny Weinglass was. Lenny Weinglass was just as smart as you can find. And so we went to Lenny for any decisions about what was going on. So Kunstler basically was seen as a show person, whereas uh, Lenny was a, a lawyer's lawyer. And we, we, we basically wanted the trial to be a, a straight trial. We wanted it to be conservative. So the, the, the fact of the matter is, there wasn't much in the way of disruption, even though people had thought that's what would occur. But uh, we were relatively conservative in, in so many ways. Well, I, at one point, Abby Hoffman did a headstand on on council table, didn't he? Right, right. So th- there were definitely some antics going on. Well, for example, my my uh, we had mail brought to our to the courtroom, and so one morning I got a box, it was a fifteen pound box, and uh, everybody said, "Don't open it! Don't open it! It's going to be a bomb in your." And have everybody get killed. As it turned out, with my mother, who's from California, who sent me 15 pounds of jelly beans. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there, there are things that happen. But in general, the other thing that was noteworthy was Dave Dallinger lost his bail. And that was too bad because we needed Dave to give speeches but he was, towards the end of the trial, he was in jail and not available. And that was because he punched a marshal, correct? No, he gave a speech, and I could be wrong about this, but uh, he gave a speech in, I think, Wisconsin. That's a guess. He uh, gave a speech and was critical of the judge. So the judge remove his bail as a result. So it sounds like there was some disagreement between the defendants as you were executing and preparing your defense strategy. But in the end, what do you think your relationship with the other defendants was as a result of all being involved in this? Well, we were playing to the media, clearly. There was enormous interest on the part of the media up for the trial. So that, in a certain sense, one of the things that characterized the entire trial was the interest on the part of the news media. So that every day people would be interviewed by news media. For example, there was a Chicago sometimes reporter who interviewed me and pointed out the fact that I was a pretty well-known chemist. And so in general, the uh, mass media was always there. And it's interesting because 
the first night when people were in Lincoln Park, I saw a Chicago policeman beat a news reporter. And I knew at that point that we were going to, we had won. We had won the battle we were going to be going through. Because it, when, when you have mass media on your side, obviously the, the mass media played a crucial role. We would go back to the Chicago 7 offices at night and watch ourselves on television. So there was a lot of personality involved in everything. Would you say that your audience during the trial was more the media rather than the jurors? Yes. Well, I guess that kind of brings us to today and the legacy that the trial has left, you know, the social imprint and the impact that we're seeing reflected in today's events. And I'm just curious, do you feel like you accomplished what you set out to? Do you feel like the message that you were intending to deliver by way of getting a lot of media attention for your cause was accomplished? Yes, I think it was very successful. Although obviously it had a reputation that was probably greater than what it actually accomplished. But I think that the trial really did affect people's lives and it affected the anti-war movement and it affected the Vietnam peace treaty that was begun under Nixon. Now the question is, what about now? One of the things that was true of the MOBA and the demonstrations in general is we had really a very significant organizational structure. We had a lot of people giving money. For example, Richard Avedon, the photographer, gave us, I think it was about $10,000. And he gave us a Christmas card with our pictures on it. And so it was characteristic, and he was a good, really good, good guy. John, let me ask a similar question. It's actually from my parents. When I told them I was going to talk to you, they were very excited. And they had one question, and it's this. Looking back on this 52 years later, was it worth it? Would you do it again? The events of the 1968 convention were credited with playing right into Richard Nixon's hands and his electoral strategy, and thus with giving him the White House. You mentioned before that you thought it had a positive impact toward ending the Vietnam War. But I'll end where I began with the question. Was it worth it? Yes. It was It was terrific. I'd do it tomorrow if I could, because it really was a special. It's interesting. You have lots of questions and that your questions have gotten more deeply into a lot of the issues that went on. And so that's, that's really useful, I think, that uh, it's different now. Now we have massive demonstrations, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. But the, what I was trying to get at was we had lots of money in the 60s. And it's not clear to me 
whether students like, for example, in what's that place in Florida? The Parkland students? Yeah, Parkland students. Question is, are they active? Are they able to function? Uh, it's 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 difficult. I mean, most people, you know, have jobs and families and what have you. And uh, the question is, can the kids who are now in the forefront, can they build an organization as effectively as we did? So I think that it's very difficult to build political organization. And in France, you have the French Communist Party, and you have left-wing groups throughout Europe. And the question is, how can we create organizational structures and raise funds and develop uh, teachings and what have you? And that, that's the challenge that I think is, is a challenge that, that is, it needs to be addressed. Sure. Has America gotten anywhere since the 1960s? Because to me, it sort of feels like we're running in place and we keep hitting the same walls. It sounds from what you said that you accomplished what you set out to with the trial because, and correct me if I'm not paraphrasing this right, but you did sway the tide of public opinion, you and, and some other events right. that occurred with respect to the Vietnam War. But today, we're still looking at many of the same problems, especially when we reflect on the incidents that occurred with Bobby Seale in the courtroom and what we're looking at with the racial injustice we mm -hmm. see in our institutions today, have we gotten anywhere? And if not, why not? Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Intellectually, uh, the question is, you have literally tens of thousands, not millions, of people protesting at this point. But it's a different ballgame than the Chicago trial was. I think that it's going to be difficult to maintain a, an organized structure. But on the other hand, there's so many people involved that we hope for the best. I'm optimistic, but I also recognize the fact that Building organization is something that is very is difficult, to say the least. So one last question, John, and then we'll let you go because you've been really generous with your time. If you had one message that you could give young people who are protesting today, what would it be? Oh, boy. Well, I guess you have to argue that somehow we need to build organization such that it has some stability, and it's difficult to do that. That's all we have for today. John Freund, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Glad to help. This was a real pleasure. It's nice to see some of the work we did it was really had some meaning to it. So that's it's a good news story. It is. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Sure. Take care, John. Thank you. 
And that is our show for today. I want to thank our guest, Professor John Freunds, for this still topical and ever-interesting conversation about the events of August 1968. I also want to thank my co-host and executive producer, Jen Byrne, Adam Lockwood on sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, we'll see you soon at the bar. <laughs>